saying the work of justice is not a marathon. People often talk about that, right? It's a marathon, um, but it's actually a relay race, <laughs> right? I have my part to do, um, but I'm not responsible for the entire thing. In fact, the entire thing is God's responsibility, right? I only have my part to play. Welcome to ResCov's Letters to the Church, a series where we get to hear people from all different walks of life tell us what they would like to say to the church at this moment. And today we're so very excited to welcome Karen Gonzalez. Uh, Karen is, as it says on her website, a speaker, writer, immigration advocate, and my personal favorite, taco enthusiast, which I, I love that, uh, who immigrated herself from Guatemala as a child. She's a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has worked with various nonprofits, but is now, I believe, uh, the Director of Human Resources at World Relief, which works with mm -hmm. immigrants and refugees. And last year, she also published her book, um, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. Karen, we're so glad to have you with us. Thank you, it's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So our first question is basically the get to know you question. Um, what shapes and informs how you show up in a space or how you show up in the world? So I wanna say that for many years, I thought the most important uh, part of my identity was that I was a Christian, uh, that all other things didn't matter. But I was really transformed by reading the Bible uh, and reading the way that Jesus specifically meets people where they are, um, as they are. So he doesn't meet the Samaritan woman just as a potential uh, person to evangelize, but he meets her as a woman, as a Samaritan, um, as an outsider, as someone who had been, it seems like the um, either the victim of a bad reputation, um, well-earned or not, and all of these things matter as he encounters her. And so when I think about my own identity, I think about I'm a woman, I am a Christian, I'm also Guatemalan, I'm an immigrant, um, I moved to this country as a child, I'm a bicultural person, and I live at all of those intersections and all of them matter deeply to God. So to me, that's really important when I come into a space that I'm allowed to be all of who I am uh, as I as I come in, and I don't have to leave pieces of myself behind to be able to to enter a space. and And this is what it means, right? As uh, Gloria Ansaldúa, the um, writer, says, this is what it means to live in borderlands. We have all these different overlapping identities, right? So, yeah. One of the things that um, I and you kind of just dipped into it right now, but one of the things I really appreciated about your book is the way that you wove the stories of the biblical characters mm -hmm. into it. Um, and I was immediately attracted to your use of Ruth, um, who, you know, this Moabite from Moab and her story and how she ends up um, in the, Jesus ends up in her lineage and the significance of that. And I was wondering if you could just say, I know you unpack this in your book a little bit, but if you could say, why that, why her story in particular perhaps is significant for you? Yeah, you know, it is such an important story to me. Thanks for asking that. Because when I was introduced to the story of Ruth, which I also tell in the book, I thought it was a story about 
just about love, just about loyalty. <laughs> um, and as I got older, something happened with that story. So a friend of mine that had struggled for many years with infertility said, I'm so comforted when I read the story of Ruth because mm. she struggled with infertility too. This is something I'd never seen in that story. But in fact, Ruth was married for 10 years mm. and that marriage produced no children. And I read the story again and it was really interesting. Not only did I see that, but I also saw that it's a story of migration. It's a story of a family that migrates to Moab because of a famine. And it's a story of two women who migrate back. And one of them is an immigrant. You know, one of them is returning home, Naomi. But Ruth the Moabitess, she's migrating to this new land. And what I saw in that story was so beautiful because in so many of the biblical stories that we read, especially in the Old Testament, you have the people of God disobeying God, worshiping idols, turning away from God, and then God sends a prophet to call them back because God loves them and God wants them back. But in the story of Ruth, you don't see that at all. You see mm -hmm. God's people obeying God. Look, how God says to treat people who are vulnerable, people who are immigrants, people who are poor, is exactly what Boaz and the people of Bethlehem do in the story of Ruth. And I found that so instructive and so relevant for our time. You know, that this community could have said, you know what, we don't know if we're going to have enough for our children. Uh, we, we don't know if we can really trust the bountiful God. We don't know that we can trust God's economy. What if there isn't enough for everyone? We should push this woman out. We should mistreat her. We should remind her that she's not one of us. And they don't do any of those things. You know, they welcome Ruth and she is able to earn a living gleaning in the fields, uh, just as God's law commands. She's able to have Sabbath rest as God's law commands. Boaz commands his workers not to assault her, not to abuse her. And what we can infer from that is this was very common with people on the margins in the society, that they were mistreated uh, to that extent, but not in the story of Ruth. All of those things um, are not existent in the story. And what you see is that everyone thrives. There is flourishing for the entire community. And isn't this what we would love to see? Aren't these the words that we would love to take on flesh? Things like justice uh, and kindness and love and grace. Uh, these are all things that we see in the story of Ruth. So it spoke to me very, very powerfully. And it reminded me of how important it is that we put on different lenses when we read the Bible, instead of the ones that we maybe we've been handed or we've been taught that it's important. It was important for me, for my friend, as someone who struggled with infertility to share that. And it allowed me the freedom to now read the book of Ruth with different lenses. Um, yeah, as you were talking, and one of the things I love about the way you even tell your experience of reading Ruth is the importance of sort of in reading it in community and in proximity to other people and, and how the experiences of others shape how we understand the biblical narrative and how we understand stories. Um, it's a really 
powerful reminder of the importance of reading these stories and this text, not in some sort of static way, but in, in community with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It really spoke powerfully to me. And this is something that, uh, you know, in the Latinos are not a monolith in the United States. We come from all different cultures, backgrounds. Some of us are first generation, some of us second, third. So I don't by any means um, mean to communicate that we're a monolith. But one of the things that uh, we do, it seems, no matter what community it is, is that we do read the Bible in conjunto, which mm -hmm. is in community, right? And in uh, being able to not only read the Bible that way, but put the Bible into practice that way. I think of a lot of our, our celebrations, you know, are very embodied. Like I think about during Christmas time, we have the tradition of the posadas where there's this reenacting in the neighborhood, in the streets of the story of Joseph and Mary uh, seeking hospitality, seeking a place uh, to enter, to be able to have their child. Um, and so, I think this is one of the most valuable things that, you know, often we think about what we can offer immigrant churches, but we seldom stop to think about what those churches have to offer to us. There's not a mutuality. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people can really learn from Latinx immigrant churches is this idea of doing theology together, reading the Bible in community, and then practicing it together. What does it mean to not just engage the Bible intellectually, but to also embody it, to also practice it together in some way in the community? So, yeah, I really, yeah. Well, and I think in addition to Ruth, you have, you look at Abraham, I believe, Joseph, mm -hmm. the Syrophoenician woman, Hagar. You're looking at all of these people who are refugees or immigrants or crossing some border and you talked a little bit about this, but what else do you think the church has to gain from uh, from changing lenses, from seeing uh, this story through the perspective of the sojourner? Yeah, you know, very often people will ask me about things like, why does liberation theology appeal so much uh, to people who've been marginalized? Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the lenses that immigrant communities have to teach us is reading the Bible uh, through a liberation lens, because it's not just for the liberation of that community, it's for our collective liberation, mm -hmm. for all of us uh, to be free. There's a, a great quote um, by a native Australian woman where she says, you know, if you've come here uh, to serve me, to take care of me, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And that's what I think about uh, when I think about what immigrant, immigrant churches have to offer or um, traditionally marginalized groups in the US is we have a different approach to reading the scripture. So for example, um, for us, theology happens second. It's not first. So first there's the practice. Praxis is what we say, right? In theological terms. And then there's the theological beliefs and understanding. So theology becomes a response to our lived experiences rather than the reverse. That first we formulate, you know, theories and ideas, and then we go and act them out. I think that's a healthier model for theology, because if you think about 
the experiences, let's say, of people, like let's think about our, our context right now where we're having a lot of protests right around um, police brutality and the murder of several black people in communities around our country. And what you see is a lot of people of faith are responding to that with their faith. So they're looking at our context and saying, what does Jesus say about this? What is our God, the God of the poor, the God of the oppressed, the God whose preferred people are those on the margins? What does our God have to say to this? So typically Eurocentric theologies do the exact reverse. Yeah. First they formulate and then they live. So I think that's an important thing that people can learn from immigrant communities. But also we learn a lot about power. So power in marginalized communities, we look at it as through a liberation lens of how is power being wielded against people who are oppressed or people who are poor. So we're looking at that, how power is being used. We're not looking at how can we maintain power or how can we maintain the status quo or gain more of it, right? We're just looking at how is power used. And I think for people in the church, this is extremely valuable to see how power is being used because as I read the scriptures, I don't see any command for us to acquire more power, for us to try to um, get close to political leaders in any way. Um, in fact, that's seen as dangerous um, in the scriptures. It's not seen as, as helpful and our own Lord Jesus Christ was executed by the state, by uh, the servant of a foreign power uh, he didn't align himself uh, with that, with Pontius Pilate and with Herod. So, so those are just a couple of things that I think are extremely valuable ways that the church uh, in immigrant communities and other marginalized communities, uh, what they have to teach and offer the church, big C, the church, big C at large. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's, there's so many, um, things in what you just said <laughs> that um, are really important. And I'm, um, I'm wondering if you, what you, why you think churches and, and the and Eurocentric churches in particular, it feels to me like we have, we have a difficult time or hesitation talking, even, even talking about power. Um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on why that is. Yeah, I think there is a sense, right. Um, that people have the power is bad. So we don't want to talk about it, but yet it's the elephant in the room. Right? Mm. Uh, there are definitely people who have power and people who don't. And I think of power more as neutral. I think of, I read a, I read a book a while back uh, by a, name named, a man named Bob Linthicum called Transforming Power. And, and really these are, I'm drawing from a lot of his ideas where he believes power is just neutral. Uh, there's no, you know, it's, it's neutral, right? It just depends on how, how it is used and then it becomes bad or good. So you have, for example, Jesus, who as a man uh, had some power, right? Who as a, a faith leader, right? We know as the son of God, uh, he gained power and he gained followers, right? That gives you power when you have some followers with you. He only had 12, but, uh, but he, he drew a large crowds, but how, did Jesus use the power that he had? Well, he empowered the people that followed him. 
So he didn't just gain it and live in a bigger house or, you know, have multiple campuses, you know, where his face was. <laughs> uh, but he uh, instead uh, gave away that power. He empowered the people uh, that followed him, men and women. And we, we know this, right, from studying the history of the church, that after Jesus died um, after he was crucified, after he was resurrected and ascended, that um, that group of people that followed him were now empowered to start the church, right? Which is the church that we're still a part of, right? Was started by those people. So I think of Jesus as using power in the best sense hmm. of using power for the common good, for the benefit of others as not hoarding it, but giving it away. Um, I see this so beautifully in the life of Father Greg Boyle. I don't know if you've had a chance to ever read Tattoos on the Heart, but I think he really lives out that ethic in his life in a way that I really strive toward because what you see in his life is the people, you know, one of the things he says is, I don't have a ministry, <laughs> I have kinship, I have mutuality. So the people that are in my life, uh, former, formerly imprisoned, people, uh, people who were formerly in gangs. Um, they are my friends. They're my community, right? And he started this business, Homeboy Industries, but it's not his business that they work for. It, it, it belongs to that community, right? And so rather than gain power for himself, what he's done is he's given it away. And what he has done is he has empowered the people that are part of this work, right? He is a leader, but the power that he has has been given away. And so I see that very beautifully lived out. So it's possible, it's feasible, and it's practical. It can be done. But I think the temptation of power toward in a negative way can be really strong. Uh, and, and I think we have to fear it because of that. We have to be cautious about having or gaining power because I think about so many political leaders who gain power so many compromises are made along the way to get there that by the time they're actually able to affect any, you know, positive change, they've been compromised. You know, they have debts to pay, favors to do. They have, they're not able uh, anymore. They've been changed by the process, right? And so I do think we have to be cautious with that. We see that with Christian leaders as well, right? Just in the past couple of years, how many Christian leaders have fallen who were tremendously powerful people of influence, right? So that's the way that I view power. And again, I've taken a lot of these ideas from other people that I read, um, but I think there can be a good and, and a positive use of power. Um, I'm a liturgist and worship, uh, I teach worship. So I have to ask this question because I was so fascinated that not only did you organize your books uh, by these folks, these uh, immigrants, but also by the sacraments and the Catholic sacraments. And so I'm wondering why are the, why did you decide to use the sacraments as this kind of key to your writing? And how do you think the sacraments shape your work for justice? Yes, that's a great question. So I really have been shaped by the Catholic Church. Now I'm no longer uh, a, a practicing Catholic. You know, I attend a Lutheran church actually here in Baltimore, but the Catholic Church was my first home in the faith. Uh, 
and it was my very first understanding of faith. And the sacraments in particular were really important in that process because there were the things where I made connection. Here was uh, something physical that was a sign of an inward grace that God gives to us, right? And when I think about my faith today, I still am very much drawn to things that are symbolic of other things. I discovered with a friend recently that I inadvertently created an altar in my house. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and I say inadvertently because, you know, I was always taught those things were wrong. You don't have those kinds of things in your home. But I started collecting some things that were important. Uh, you know, I lived in Russia for a time, so I bought an icon there. I was in Latin America in, Ch in Chile and I bought this carved Jesus and I had started putting all these things together and a friend of mine said, oh, you have an altar. And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> but uh, I think for me, those things speak really powerfully about God's presence, having um, a way to engage God with things that are, are physical, but are also deeply meaningful. And when I think about connecting that to justice work, you know, Father uh, Romero, who I write about in my book, he was passionate about justice, passionate about uh, serving the poor, uh, serving the oppressed. Uh, he knew it was a great risk to his own life, uh, but it didn't matter to him. This work was still important. However, he didn't leave the priesthood. He didn't abandon the church. He would still gather his community every day for mass. They would have, you know, he was murdered in the middle of the Eucharist. He was mm -hmm. blessing the, the cup and the wine, the, right, the, the bread and the wine. Uh, when he was killed, somebody literally stormed into the church. And so, so what I saw in that was this very powerful thing of you can be like a justice person and not have faith. Um, you can be also a pastor, a member of a clergy, a lay person uh, who only does, you know, faith, faith things, right? Things that are like very much clearly Christian things. Um, but you can marry the two. And I saw that, you know, Father Romero, one of the things that happened in his life is because he was archbishop, very wealthy people in El Salvador would approach him and ask him for private baptisms, private ceremonies where they could just, you know, baptize their own privileged wealthy children mm -hmm. uh, instead of joining the baptisms that were done in the church on a weekly basis. And, and he would refuse to do that. He would say, no, this is the time when we do this and your child can come. And some people would come and some people would say, I don't want my child baptized with a bunch of indigenous children, which is a response that he also received. Um, but he didn't differentiate between people. So he lived out his orientation toward liberation and toward justice because he believed in a God of, who was just in the midst of a faith community where he practiced the sacraments with the people, but he did it in a way that was also just. Mm -hmm. um, and so I saw that union very beautifully in his life. You know, it's something I aspire to do is being able to connect these things um, well, you know, to live a sort of a very well-rounded life of of justice seeking that's really informed by my love for Jesus and, and his teachings. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I appreciate about the way you're talking about this is that um, the way that the sacraments become intertwined with the realities of our day um, and the importance of not seeing these as separate things, but as very much connected to the to the streets, um, to the things that are unfolding in our lives. Um, which speaking of things unfolding in our lives, um, there's just a lot, there's a lot going on in our world right now, in our country. And um, as we talk with people um, and, and I experience myself, it's sometimes, you know, we have the response to COVID, uh, Black Lives Matters protest, we got fires, we have an election coming up, we're, we're now in the midst of a struggle over a Supreme Court justice. Um, it feels, um, I don't know if easy is the right word, but it feels um, tempting to um, move into places of despair and or cynicism. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on or how you maintain a sense of hope. How do you hold on to hope in the midst of kind of all of this that's unfolding? Yeah. So I have a couple of answers to that. One is I'm not sure that hopelessness is entirely useless. And I know mm -hmm. that sounds <laughs> contradictory, but, you know, a friend of mine, um, another Latina, uh, Cuban American, my friend Kat, we were talking about the theology of hopelessness because um, even though it seems useless and despairing and like what good could possibly come of it, in fact, um, that discipline of hopelessness has actually helped people, particularly people who are poor and people who are oppressed uh, to really spur to action. It's been the birthplace of um, activism um, and ideas. If you, um, so, you know, you think about something like the civil rights movement, or I think about the liberation theology movement in Central America, all of those movements were responses to uh, terrible, terrible injustices that, and those people in the midst of the hopeless place began to dream of a different kind of reality, of what was possible, right? They asked God for the imagination uh, to, to see, to have a vision for a different kind of life um, and for the transformation of their communities as well. So I do think hopelessness has um, a role to play um, that, you know, we're so focused in, in the West on a theology of resurrection um, and of hope that I think we undervalue what those places, those dark places have to teach us. Um, and there are things that are good and useful about being in that space. And so I feel some of the what's happening right now, some of the activism and some of the change that's happening, um, I think it's being spurred by this deeply hopeless place. Um, and so, so I don't want people to completely dismiss um, the positive role that hopelessness can have in actually initiating movements and bringing transformation. And these are some great, um, this is some great ideas from the uh, theologian, the Cuban theologian, his name is Miguel de la Torre, and he, he's, a, he's a liberation theologian. But a lot of these are these ideas that, um, that we've been reading from him um, that I think are very helpful to our context right now. But the second thing is, I think the place, honestly, you're right, looking around, I don't have a lot of hope. 
if I'm just looking around at what is happening in the world, um, if I'm looking at the deportation flights coming to Guatemala, that 75% of the people test positive for COVID-19. Mm. If I look at the death rates, you know, which at one point were seen as like hysterical exaggerations, the death rates that we have in the world due to COVID right now, it's bleak. Um, but I think where I see glimmers of hope that encourage me is in people. It's embodied in certain people. You know, there are people that are still out there doing really good work and engaging it. And yes, if we look at the larger picture of everything happening in the world, it is very bleak. But if we look at individuals uh, that are making a difference in their communities, um, that are embodying hope, the hope of the gospel, not just some like cockeyed optimism, <laughs> but the hope of the gospel. And I think that gives me tremendous hope. I spoke to a pastor here in Baltimore who's a pastor in a very poor community uh, in uh, East Baltimore, which is an immigrant neighborhood. And, you know, talking, I was talking to them about their work. It's a very small church, um, but it's interesting he said, we're, we're, we're planning something for after the pandemic, and we're thinking of calling it Neighbors, Welcoming Neighbors. Uh, he said, because we didn't want to use language that made our um, the immigrants in our community feel like they were othered. This is their community, too. And so, you know, they have this little planning team where they're talking about things that, they, that they're engaging in the community now. They have all these, like, they have a food pantry and they do food deliveries to their neighbors. Um, they have these online tutoring programs for the immigrant kids because they know that a lot of the parents don't speak the language to help their kids do remote school. And, you know, this is a small church um, with not a ton of money or resources, but to me, they just embodied and, and the care that they took in saying, we don't want to other our immigrant neighbors. So we're going to say this this event is going to be called Neighbors Welcoming Neighbors. And I found that so supremely encouraging, um, the work that they're doing. This isn't work that gets into the news, <laughs> right? And so I think we have to stop looking to the news to provide us these glimpses of hope um, that are embodied uh, in, in, our, in our country. I think we have to start looking around at our communities um, and the people in our communities that are still working toward justice and equality, you know, with the hope that Christ gives them, um, instead of looking out, I, you know, I avoid certain things because I know that they're not going to be particularly encouraging. But there are so many places where I see hope embodied in people that are still actively and quietly doing the work of the kingdom. Mm. Amen. So um, the way we wrap up all of these interviews is in the um, to ask you that in light of your unique vocation and all the things you've talked about today, um, if you were writing a letter to the church in kind of this tradition of the epistles, what would you want us? What would you want to say to the church right now? What are your hopes for the church? Yeah, mm, that's such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think. If I were writing um, to the church right now, I think I would want them, um, I would wanna encourage them 
in the way that really Paul did in many ways is to encourage them to continue the work that they're doing, that they're not, I heard um, another uh, theologian, Andre Henry, he was saying the work of justice is not a marathon. People often talk about that, right? It's a marathon, um, but it's actually a relay race, <laughs> right? I have my part to do, um, but I'm not responsible for the entire thing. In fact, the entire thing is God's responsibility, right? I only have my part to play. And I think that's what I would want to write to the church is, yes, it's extremely discouraging to look at what's happening in the world, but you have a role. Here is your part of the relay race to run. And, and is that where your energy is? Or have you been so um, discouraged and are you so despairing by the larger picture that you can't see the very good work that you can do in your context, in your small area where you are? And I think that's what I would want to say to the church. And, you know, certainly there's a lot we could go into detail about the good that they can do. But I think all of us do have a role to play. We're called, we have different vocations and we're called to different things. And so that would be my word. That's a good, good word. word. <laughs> uh, we, well, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time. We know you're busy, especially in the midst of all these things. So uh, we are just so encouraged by your work and we uh, are so grateful that you are using your voice in that relay race and being faithful to what God is calling you to. So thank you so much uh, for speaking with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here.